Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome back to the Story We Agreed to Do This, a podcast about genocide and field genocide studies. I'm still your host, historian John Lestrange, and today we're going to be talking about a genocide that too often gets systematic persecution and killing of Cambodians by the Khmer Rouge under the leadership of Pol Pot. It resulted in the deaths of 1.5 to 2 million people from 1975 to 1979, which was nearly a quarter of Cambodia's 1975 population. But, as always, before we can get into the actual meat of the genocide, we have to dive into the history of the country in which it happened. The first king of the Khmer Empire, that would later be known as Cambodia, was Jayavarman II. Jayavarman Jayavarman II united the various feuding warlords of the region and declared himself king in the year 802 CE. His reign lasted until 835 when he died. We don't have any writings from Jayavarman himself, but future Khmer kings have described him as a warrior and as the most powerful ruler of his day. The Khmer kingdom lasted for about 600 years and propagandized memories of it will become very important as we approach the Cambodian genocide. Cambodian power in the region began declining in the 15th century, and in 1863, it became a protectorate of France. Essentially, it became a French colony. They just gave it a fancier name. They regained their independence about 90 years later in 1953, and regaining their independence is going to cause a significant amount of tensions in the country, which will eventually lead to the Cambodian genocide, or it'll be at least one of the factors of it. Now, one of the other factors that's going to influence the Cambodian genocide is the destabilization of the region that was caused by the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War extended across the border into Cambodia, and this led to the U.S. bombing the absolute hell out of the Vietnam-Cambodian border region from 1969 until 1973. Now, the Cambodian Civil War started in 1967, and it was a hugely complicated conflict that's going to have far-reaching implications for the region. On March 11, 1967, while Noradam Sihanouk, the king of Cambodia, was out of the country in France, a rebellion broke out in the area around Samlaut in Battambang when enraged villagers attacked a tax collection brigade. With the probable encouragement of local communist cadres, the insurrection quickly spread throughout the whole region. Lan Nal, who was acting in the prince's absence but with his approval, responded by declaring martial law. Hundreds of peasants were killed, and whole villages were laid waste during the repression. On one side of the conflict, you had the Khmer Rouge, backed by the Viet Cong, and on the other, you had the Kingdom of Cambodia, which was supported by the United States, and South Vietnam. On the 18th of March 1970, La Nol requested the National Assembly vote on the future of the prince's leadership of the nation. Sihanouk was ousted from power by a vote of 86 to 3. 
Hang Cheng became president of the National Assembly, while Prime Minister Lan Nal was granted emergency powers. Nothing good ever really happens when rulers are granted emergency power. They're pretty much always used to strip rights and protections away from people because, you know, war forces us to do those things, I guess. On the 17th of January, 1968, the Khmer Rouge launched their first offensive. It was aimed more at gathering weapons and spreading propaganda than in seizing territory, since at the time, the adherents of the insurgency numbered no more than four to 5,000 people. During the same month, the communists established the Revolutionary Army of Kampuchea as the military wing of the party. Within days of his deposition, Sihanouk, now in Beijing, broadcast an appeal to the people to resist the usurpers. Demonstrations and riots occurred mainly in areas contiguous to Viet Cong-controlled areas, but no nationwide groundswell threatened the government. In one incident in Kampong Cham on the 29th of March, an enraged crowd killed Lan Nal's brother, Lan Nil, tore out his liver, and cooked and ate it. Shit gets wild. Lan Nal hoped to use the Vietnamese as hostages against Viet Cong activities, and the military set about rounding them up into detention camps. That was when the killing began. In towns and villages all over Cambodia, soldiers and civilians sought out their Vietnamese neighbors in order to murder them. In the wake of the coup, Lan Nal did not immediately launch Cambodia into war. His hope for continued neutralism availed him no more than it had Sihanouk. On the 29th of March 1970, the North Vietnamese had taken matters into their own hands and launched an offensive. The North Vietnamese overran most of northeastern Cambodia by June of 1970. The North Vietnamese invasion completely changed the course of the Civil War. Cambodia's army was mauled, Lands containing nearly half of Cambodian population were conquered and handed over to the Khmer Rouge, and North Vietnam now took an active role in supplying and training the Khmer Rouge. All of this resulted in the Cambodian government being greatly weakened and the insurgents multiplying several fold in size over the course of a few weeks. As combat operations quickly revealed, the two sides were badly mismatched. The Khmer Rouge had a significant advantage over the Khmer Republic's army, both in numbers and in training. It's important that we make a distinction between the Khmer Rouge, who are our insurgents during this conflict, and the Khmer Republic, which is the proper name of the Cambodian army. Now, the U.S. bombing of Cambodia happened under two U.S. military operations, Operation Menu and Operation Freedom Deal, because U.S. military operations always have to have stupid names. During Operation Menu, the U.S. dropped 108,000 tons of bombs on the eastern border region. There were two immediately observable effects of the bombings. The first was that between 30 and 150,000 Cambodians died, and the second was that the number of the Khmer Rouge rose from 4,000 people to 70,000 people. All told, throughout Operation Menu, 539,129 tons of bombs were dropped. That is a massive amount of ordnance. Sihanouk was never asked to approve the B-52 bombings, and he never gave his approval anyway. During the course of the menu bombings, Sihanouk's government formally protested, quote, unquote, American violations of Cambodian territory and airspace, at the United Nations on over 100 occasions, although it specifically protested the use of B-52s only once, following an attack on Bu Shrik in November 1969. Reports of the brutal policies of the organization soon made their way to Phnom Penh and into the population, foretelling the violence that was about to consume the nation. 
There were tales of the forced relocations of entire villages, of summary execution of any who disobeyed or even asked questions, the forbidding of religious practices, of monks who were defrocked or murdered, and where traditional sexual and marital habits were forsworn as early as 1972. The Khmer Rouge leadership was almost completely unknown by the public. They were referred to by their fellow countrymen as Piapre, the Forest Army, Pol Pot and San Sen, who believed that Cambodia was to go through a total social revolution and that everything that had preceded it was anathema and must be destroyed, were the two main leaders of the Khmer Rouge at the time. By the time the Khmer Rouge initiated their dry season offensive to capture the beleaguered Cambodian capital on the 1st of January, 1975, the Republic was in chaos. The economy had been gutted, the transportation network had been reduced to air and waterways, the rice harvest had fallen by one quarter, and the supply of freshwater fish, the chief source of protein for the country, had declined drastically. The cost of food was 20 times greater than pre-war levels, while unemployment was not even measured anymore. The Khmer Rouge cut off overland supplies to Phnom Penh for more than a year before it fell on the 17th of April 1975. Reports from journalists stated that the Khmer Rouge shelling tortured the capital almost continuously, inflicting random death and mutilation on millions of trapped civilians. The conflict between the Khmer Rouge and the Khmer Republic was phenomenally brutal. Millions of people were killed, and we haven't even really gotten to the genocide yet. By the last week of March 1975, approximately 40,000 communist troops had surrounded the capital and began preparing to deliver the coup de grace. In the Cambodian Civil War, Khmer Rouge insurgents reportedly committed atrocities. These included the million these included the murder of civilians and POWs by slowly sawing off their heads a little more each day, the destruction of Buddhist Wats, and the killing of monks, attacks on refugee camps involving the deliberate murder of babies and bomb threats against foreign aid workers, the abduction and assassination of journalists, and of course the shelling of the capital. The Khmer Rouge exploited thousands of desensitized, conscripted children in their early teens to commit mass murder and other atrocities during the genocide. The indoctrinated children were taught to follow any order without hesitation. Ideology played a very important role in the Cambodian genocide. Pol Pot was influenced by Marxist-Leninism and wanted an entirely self-sufficient agrarian society that would be free of foreign influence. Stalin's work had been described as a crucial formative influence on his thoughts. He was also heavily influenced by Mao's work, particularly on new democracy. In the mid-1960s, Pol Pot reformulated his ideas about Marxist-Leninism to suit the Cambodian situation with goals such as bringing Cambodia back to its mythic past of the powerful Khmer Empire, eradicating corrupting influences such as foreign aid and Western culture, and the restoration of an agrarian society. Pol Pot's strong belief in an agrarian utopia stemmed from his experience in Cambodia's rural northeast, where, while the Khmer Rouge gained power, he developed an affinity for the agrarian self-sufficiency of the area's isolated tribes. Despite the fact that the Khmer Rouge claimed communism as their end goal and inspiration, 
Their ideology and methodology much more closely match the 14 main characteristics of fascism that Umberto Eco outlined in his 1995 essay, Er Fascism. Umberto Eco had grown up in fascist Italy and was a professor of semiotics for a good long time, semiotics being the study of signs and symbols and their use or interpretation. We're going to go over briefly Echo's 14 points of fascism, and you can apply them to the Camille Rouge or to the current political regime in the United States as you wish. The first feature of fascism, according to Umberto Eco, is a cult of traditionalism. Then we have uh, a rejection of modernism, uh, a certain amount of irrationalism or anti-intellectualism, disagreement being seen as a sign of treason, there was an inherent fear of difference. There was an appeal to a frustrated middle class in a kind of populism. There was an obsession with a plot. The followers of a fascist regime have to feel besieged by outside forces so that they can more tightly congregate into a um, strong central core. Uh, pacifism is seen as weakness. There's an obsession with guns and war. There is a contempt for the weak. Um, there is an obsession with heroic deaths for the state. There's also an obsession with machismo, uh, is the word that Echo uses, uh, which implies, right, the word machismo does, a disdain for women and intolerance and condemnation of non-standard sexual habits from chastity to, you know, homosexuality. So... It has a lot of overlap with uh, our modern concept of toxic masculinity. Uh, and there is a rejection of critical thinking skills found in fascist regimes. A lot of these factors you'll find in Cambodia under the rule of the Khmer Rouge. You'll also find a lot of them in the Trump administration right now. So these are just things to be aware of as we move forward. Returning to the Cambodian genocide, though, because Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge wanted to return to this golden age of the past, any foreign or corrupting influence had to be purged. Anything that stood in the way of that pure agrarian utopia just had to go. The Khmer Rouge forced virtually all of Cambodia's population into mobile work teams. Michael Hunt has written that it was an experiment in social mobilization unmatched in 20th century revolutions. The Khmer Rouge used an inhumane forced labor regime, starvation, forced resettlement, land collectivization, and state terror to keep the population in line. The Khmer Rouge's economic plan was aptly, the Khmer Rouge's economic plan was aptly named the Mahalot Plo, a direct allusion to the great leap forward of China that caused tens of millions of deaths in the Great Chinese Famine. Scholars and historians have varying opinions on whether the persecution and killings under the hands of the Khmer Rouge should be considered genocide. This is because the earlier scholarship, which came out right after the fall of the Khmer Rouge in 1979, had claimed that the victims could have been killed due to the circumstances they were in. For instance, Michael Vickery opined that the killings were largely the result of the spontaneous excesses of a vengeful and undisciplined peasant army. However, that shifting of blame to out-of-control elements within the army is a common tactic of genocide denialism that Gregory Stanton wrote about for Genocide Watch. So also, as we've discussed previously here on Genostory, you don't necessarily need specific intent for something to be considered genocide. General intent, where you see that certain policies are causing mass death, but then continue to implement them anyway, is another form of intent under genocide. 
special organizations, right, like this out-of-control peasant army or just the special organization in the Armenian genocide are classic scapegoats for genocidal killings. The killings in the Cambodian genocide were a centralized and bureaucratic effort by the Khmer Rouge regime, as recently documented by the Documentation Center of Cambodia, through the discovery of Khmer Rouge internal security documents which instructed the killings across all of Cambodia. David Chandler has argued that although ethnic minorities fell victim to the Khmer Rouge regime, they were not targeted specifically because of their, their ethnic backgrounds, but rather because they were mostly enemies of the revolution. And because the UN, quite erroneously, doesn't include political parties or economic classes in their definition of genocide, the Cambodian genocide falls outside of that classic definition for a number of genocide scholars. The Khmer Rouge initially ordered the expulsion of ethnic Vietnamese from Cambodia, but, but then conducted large-scale massacres of large numbers of Vietnamese civilians who were being deported out of Cambodia. The regime then prevented the remaining 20,000 ethnic Vietnamese from fleeing, and much of this group was also executed. The Khmer Rouge also used the media to support their goals of genocide. Radio Phnom Penh called on Cambodians to exterminate the 50 million Vietnamese. The state of the Chinese Cambodians during the Khmer Rouge regime was alleged to be the worst disaster ever to befall any ethnic Chinese community in Southeast Asia. Cambodians of Chinese descent were massacred by the Khmer Rouge under the justification that they, quote, used to exploit the Cambodian people, end quote. The Chinese were stereotyped typed as traitors and moneylenders associated with capitalism, while historically the group had attracted resentment due to their lighter skin color and cultural differences. According to Ben Kiernan, the fiercest extermination campaign was directed against the ethnic Chams, Cambodia's Muslim minority. Islam was seen as an alien and foreign culture that did not belong in the new communist system. Initially, the Khmer Rouge aimed for the forced assimilation of Chams through population dispersal. Pol Pot then began using intimidation efforts against the Chams that included the assassination of village elders, but he ultimately ordered the full-scale mass killings of the Cham people. Under the leadership of Pol Pot, who was an ardent Marxist atheist, the Khmer Rouge enforced a policy of state atheism. According to Catherine Wessinger, Democratic Kampuchea, which was what the Khmer Rouge called Cambodia during this time, was officially an atheist state, and the persecution of religion by the Khmer Rouge was only matched in severity by the persecution of religion in North Korea. All of religions were banned, and the repression of adherents of Islam, Christianity, and Buddhism was extensive. It's estimated that up to 50,000 Buddhist monks were massacred by the Khmer Rouge. The Khmer Rouge regime is also well known for practicing torturous medical experiments on prisoners. People were imprisoned and tortured merely on suspicion of opposing the regime and because other prisoners gave their names under torture. Whole families, including women and children, ended up in prisons and were tortured because the Khmer Rouge feared that if they did not do this, their intended victims' relatives would seek revenge. Pol Pot said, If you want to kill the grass, you also have to kill the roost. There is a documentary on S21 called S21, The Khmer Rouge Death Machine. It's not a, it is a difficult thing to watch. Um, I had to watch it in undergrad when I took a class on uh, Asian genocides because the teacher for that class, Dr. Sue Grunwald, had a focus on the Cambodian genocide. Um, it is a very difficult watch, but if you want more information on S21 and the Cambodian genocide in general, 
you should be able to find it somewhere online. Uh, I'm going to give a brief content warning for what happens next because uh, in this next section there is going to be violence against babies mentioned. So if that is not a thing that you want to hear, please just skip ahead about two minutes. Inside S21, a special treatment was given to babies and children. They were taken away from their mothers and relatives and sent to the killing fields where they were smashed against the so-called Chankiri tree. A similar treatment is supposed to have been given to babies of other prisons like S21 spread all over democratic Kampuchea. People who'd previously been doctors in Cambodia were either killed or sent to the countryside to work as farmers during the Khmer Rouge's rule. There was a lot of hate towards elites during the Khmer Rouge genocide. The idea was that anyone who was well-educated or, um, you know, made too much money, even someone who wore glasses could wind up being killed uh, if they were, or if it could be uh, justified that they thought themselves better than the average Cambodian, right? The idea was that the uh, pinnacle of Cambodian society, of Khmer Rouge society, was the peasant farmer, and that anyone who considered or appeared to be uh, quote-unquote better than those people was an elite who had to be either broken back down to the level of agrarian society or killed. But because so much of the elite intellectuals were killed, medical facilities in places like S21 where medical experiments were done did not have people who knew what they were doing in them or any kind of proper training or equipment. The regime employed child medics who were just teenagers with no or very little training. They didn't have any knowledge of Western medicine, which had been forbidden since it was considered a capitalist invention, and they had to practice their own medical experiments and make progress by themselves. They didn't have Western medicine since Cambodia, according to the Khmer Rouge, had to be self-sufficient, and all medical experiments were systematically conducted without anesthetics, which means that most people who were the subject of these experiments would have died of shock during them. Um, the Cambodian genocide was horrifically brutal. Um, death tolls from the Cambodian genocide, as we mentioned earlier, ranged somewhere between one and a half and two million people. On the 15th of July, 1979, following the overthrow of the Khmer Rouge, the new government of Cambodia passed Decree Law Number 1. This allowed for the trial of Pol Pot and Yang Sari for the crime of genocide. They were given an American defense lawyer, Hope Stevens, and were tried in absentia and convicted of genocide. Pol Pot remained out of custody until 1998 when he was placed on house arrest for his crimes. He would die within a few months of his imprisonment. When it became clear that the leaders of the Khmer Rouge, or when it became clear to the leaders of the Khmer Rouge that they were going to lose this conflict that emerged in the shadow of the Cambodian genocide and they were going to be overthrown, they fled into the jungles, not wanting to be tried for the crimes that they had committed, not wanting to be held accountable by by, you know, Western law courts, um, and many of them stayed out of custody for a good long while. Um, when Pol Pot was eventually captured and placed under house arrest, uh, news organizations came from all over to interview him. Um, there are a lot of interviews with Pol Pot. Um, Nuan Chea, also known as Brother Number Two, the second in command uh, to Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge, was arrested 
on the 19th of September 2007. At the end of his 2013 trial, he denied all charges, stating that he had not given orders to, quote, mistreat or kill people, to deprive them of food, or commit any genocide, end quote. He was convicted in 2014 and sentenced to life imprisonment. As far as I know, he's still in jail uh, to this day, although he might be dead by now. A few months before his death, on the 15th of April 1998, Pol Pot was interviewed by Nate Thayer. During the interview, he stated that he had a clear conscience and denied being responsible for the genocide. Pol Pot asserted that he, quote, came to carry out the struggle, not to kill people, end quote. According to Alex Alvarez, Pol Pot portrayed himself as a misunderstood and unfairly vilified figure, which is not an uncommon thing to do for genocidal rulers to do if they manage to survive beyond the end of their genocide. Villains very rarely see themselves as the villain. They see their struggle as a noble and necessary one, and that's usually how they wind up justifying their genocides anyway, by portraying it as a noble and necessary cause for the preservation of their people and their way of life. So the fact that Pol Pot continued to think that he had done nothing wrong for his entire life isn't surprising. It very clearly mirrors the ideas of people like Alwa Brunner, uh, a Nazi who went on trial uh, a while back and was interviewed um, and said during that interview that his only regret was that he hadn't killed more Jews. Very disturbing thing for a person to say. But that brings us to the end of the Cambodian genocide. And now that we find ourselves at the end of our episode on the Cambodian genocide, we also are wrapping up our second arc on seminal genocides. Next episode, we're going to be starting a new arc. And I'm very, very excited for this. I've been looking forward to doing this since I started Genostory um, back last April. We're going to be doing a series of episodes on how genocide is represented in fictional media, specifically cartoons, using the TV series Avatar The Last Airbender as a case study. So this is going to be a departure from the type of history we usually do, but I hope that that's not going to be a deal breaker for uh, listeners and that you stick around with me through this next stage. We'll get back to real world history after we get through Avatar The Last Airbender. Genistory is a part of the That's Not Canon podcasting network. Uh, this is going to be the second episode uploaded as part of that network, and I'm very excited to be part of That's Not Canon. They're a great group of people with some great shows. You can find Genistory at that'snotcanon.genistory.com. Um, just like I did last month, I'm going to shout out one of That's Not Canon's podcasts, and this is another one that I'm very excited to listen to. Uh, now that I'm caught up with all of the other podcasts that I've been listening to, it's called A New World Order, a speculative political podcast. The world is a mess, but who can we turn to to fix it? The United Nations, the Dalai Lama, the long-lost heir of the Russian Empire? Frankly, all of those options would probably be better than listening to three white guys from Australia wax lyrical about how everything in the world would be better if they were the one and only supreme dictator. And yet, here we are. Our hosts, People's Champions Bigulio, Supreme Leader Sosler, I should have read this before I decided to record it, and Chancellor Weber tackle the big questions in politics based on the framework of their own personal nation, made possible through the online nation simulator Nation States. I'll have to check out that um, nation simulator. Each week, our leaders will address one of the most pressing issues of their nation and then try and justify this choice to both of their counterparts. What could possibly go wrong? Arguments, ruined friendships, thermonuclear winter? Probably, but you'll just have to listen each week to find out. That sounds very cool. 
I'm definitely going to listen to that um, as soon as I am done recording for the day. Honestly, I'll probably just head over to Spotify and do that. But back to me. If you like what you heard here, you can follow Genistory on social media. We are at Pod on Twitter, facebook.com backslash Pod, or you can send us an email at genistorypod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear about. Speaking of that, someone actually sent uh, an email to Pod asking a question, um, and I am now going to read that email, and I'm going to answer it online. I already answered this person's email um, just through the email because they sent it when was this back at the beginning of they sent it back on October 7th uh, which was a while ago and I didn't want to just have them wait around until November 15th to get their answer so I, I already answered them um, I'd already recorded the October episode by the time I saw it so I didn't just do it then um, so the question from uh, Audrey DeAngelis, uh, it reads, Hi, I just started listening to the podcast, and I know you've talked on TikTok about the paradox of intolerance, but I'm wondering how you feel that ideological groups based in hate fit into the lower levels of the pyramid of hate, specifically jokes, derision aimed at white supremacists or other groups of people who advocate hate and violence, because presumably they chose to be a part of that group, though potentially they are also members who were effectively brainwashed into it. But the same could be said of religious groups. But if a group's foundation is based in hate, does that negate some part of it? I guess I'm just not sure how bad I should feel or where I should stop myself in saying nasty things about Nazis. Obviously, dehumanizing is not okay, but there are statements about white supremacists that I would laugh at. But if they were said about another group, I might find extremely offensive. Um, and this is the response that I gave to Audrey in the email. Hi, Audrey. So for lack of a better term, social clubs like the Nazis aren't a permanent group. You can stop being one whenever. So they don't qualify as protected groups under any legal definition. However, I tend to avoid dehumanizing jokes about them because I don't want to connect Nazis with not human. I don't want people thinking that, oh, well, real people would never, because real people would, real people did, real people are doing. That being said, jokes about their ideology are fair game. For example, how does it feel to be so weak that you're frightened of other races? I hope that answers your question. Uh, and then I asked if it would be okay if I recorded the answer for this podcast, which I just did. Um, so, Audrey, if you are listening, thank you for that email. Um, everyone else, please feel free to email me at genistorypod at gmail.com if you want to uh, have a question answered on air. Uh, I'll, of course, answer you in text as quickly as possible so you don't have to wait too long, but give me more stuff to fill airtime with. If you'd like more of just me in your life, you can find me on Twitter at Prof John Strange, uh, on Facebook at John Lestrange colon historian, but most people seem to find me on TikTok, where I am now at the History Wizard. So head on over there and join the 75,000 or so people who occasionally listen to me rant about history and politics. If you're looking for something to read during this quarantine, I've, I added this like the second month of quarantine, and I feel like I've like said this same thing for like five or six months, and it's really annoying that I keep having to say if you're looking for something to read during 
quarantine. So for the love of God, just wash your hands and wear your fucking mask so we can get out of this damn pandemic. But if you're looking for something to read during this quarantine, you can find both of my books, Representations of Genocide in Cartoons, and representations of genocide in video games on Amazon. They are available in paperback in pick. They are available in paperback and ebook formats. Please give those a rate and review while you're at it. Speaking of reviews, I got a new review for Genostory. I got this one back on the 14th of December, so it came uh, before the October episode went out, but uh, long after I had recorded it. I didn't even check to find it until well after that episode had come out. Uh, but it is from Chemico Pazzo, and the subject line reads, New Favorite Podcast. I already like where this is going. Dr. Lestrange's podcast is amazing. His ability to break down large, complex concepts and make it digestible to the average listener is perfect. His information is well-informed and fully researched. I have been recommending Genistory to anyone and everyone. Please don't stop and keep up the amazing work. Well, two things. One, thank you very much. That's uh, a wonderful thing to get to read. And then um, two is I'm actually not a doctor. I was Dr. Hufflepuff on TikTok for a while, and I, I think that confused a bunch of people. The doctor in there was aspirational. I just have a master's degree. But thank you nonetheless. I will take it as a compliment, and I will appreciate it very, very much. If you enjoy listening to Jenna's story, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcatcher if you can. It helps uh, the podcast get seen by other people so that word can spread. Also, if you leave a review, I will read it on air, and I will thank you profusely because you're wonderful people, and I love and appreciate you very, very much. Thank you to Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech for our show music. Thank you to the app Hatchful and my amazing wife, MJ, for designing and then editing our logo. As always, I'm John, and this has been Genistory. We agreed to do this. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.